Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Together with my co-host Joe Stewart, we speak with extraordinary movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. But before we dive in, we want to take a moment to acknowledge and honour the traditional owners of the unceded land where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our deepest respects to the elders both past and present and acknowledge the emerging leaders within their community. We also want to wish you a happy new year. We're delighted to be speaking with Jivana Heyman as our first guest for 2024. I think we could all use some extra inspiration as this new year unfolds and Jivana is definitely someone we look to as yoga teachers and human beings. We're huge fans of Jivana and his previous two books, Accessible Yoga, Poses and Practices for Everybody, and Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. We were excited to read his latest offering, The Teacher's Guide to Accessible Yoga, Best Practices for Sharing Yoga with Everybody. Since Jivana coined the phrase Accessible Yoga over 15 years ago, He's been dedicated to sharing yoga with people who've been previously excluded from studio spaces and creating a wonderful global community where we can learn from and support each other. He does this in his work as the founder and director of the Accessible Yoga Association and his many teacher training courses, but also through his books. This book is for teachers and we think it would be an asset to teachers of all styles, It addresses so many of the important aspects of teaching that get left out of many contemporary trainings, but also has insights that experienced teachers will also appreciate. We always love speaking to Jivana, and we hope you enjoy this conversation too. Stay tuned till the end for your chance to win a copy of Jivana's latest book. All right, well, Jivana, it's been a while. It's so great to get the chance to speak with you again. We're, We're... we were pretty much incredibly honoured to even be asked, so thank you for speaking with us today. First of all, how are you? Hmm. Thank you. Thanks so much, both of you, Joe and Ron. I really appreciate being back. I, is it my third one? Third? I don't know. I'm I like, think oh. so, yeah. <laughs> I love talking to you both, so it's really my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm good, you know. It's been a while since we've spoken, but, you know, I can't complain. I mean, I could, but I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to complain. How are you? Yeah, we're good. We're good. It's a kind of heavy time in world yeah. news and a lot of sadness. So it sometimes feels a little bit insensitive saying, yeah, I'm fine. But I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the challenge of, of life, you know, is, um, and, and of uh, spiritual practice is how do you how do you connect your practice to the world and, you know, take care of yourself and still care for others? I think it's related somehow. <laughs> I mean, I think the taking the time to take care of ourselves helps to refill our cup so that then we do have like more energy and clarity to send back out um, into the world. Hopefully that's, that's the energy I'm bringing into my practice at the moment. Yeah, no, me, me too, because I feel like like when the conflict, or I don't know what you want to call it, what's happening in Gaza and Palestine is just, when it started, I was having kind of a rough moment, and it was hard for me to speak out publicly, because I had just like too much going on in my personal life, but and that was, it kind of showed me that I couldn't be there, I couldn't be there for to speak out just on my small platform, 
because I was like not in a good place. So then when I started to feel better, I was like, oh my God, now I can finally say something. So, I mean, I guess that's what we're trying to say, right? Like take care of yourself, take care of myself so that I can be strong enough to speak for others. And I have been taking a lot of, I don't know if solace or inspiration is the word from the philosophy that you have been sharing online. I found that really helpful. And that flows into your books, which is a chance to kind of delve a little bit deeper into those really deep ideas beyond a short Instagram post. And I guess that leads us to the reason we're talking to you today, which Mm -hmm. is your third book, which I didn't write the title down. (laughs) The Teacher's Guide to Accessible Yoga. Oh, thank you so much, Divina. And so... Like your previous two books, Accessible Yoga, Poses and Practices for Everybody and Yoga Revolution, create building a practice of courage and compassion, which is really exactly what we're speaking about now. Was it always your plan to create this third book that was aimed just at yoga teachers or was this more something that emerged in response to a need or a void that you noticed? Hmm. I am, There was never a plan uh, to do anything. I mean, I just feel like I'm trying to just do the best I can in every given moment. And so, yeah, it felt like after my last book, I I was thinking about, I, I, let me just go back and say, I love writing. So actually for me, writing is a practice. It's part of my spiritual practice. It's a really great way for me to reflect on what I'm thinking about and, you know, how I'm acting in the world. And, and I love teaching yoga, obviously, and I love training yoga teachers. And so then it just occurred to me after, after my second book, I had some time where I didn't write and I was just kind of sitting with it. And I was just thinking, you know, what do I really love to do? And it's like, I really love to talk to other yoga teachers. (laughs) That was really what came up for me. I love my trainings where I get to, you know, talk with other yoga teachers at length. And then uh, I actually, I say it in the book, but like my husband and I have a joke because if I have a friend who's a yoga teacher, he refuses to come out with us. Like he will not socialize with me and other yoga teachers because he's like, you just won't talk about anything else. It's like, <laughs> and he's not a yoga teacher and he just gets really tired of hearing about it. So yeah, that's kind of my my inspiration for this book was like, I just want to talk to yoga teachers. So of course it's a one-sided conversation, right? I'm just writing a book, but that's kind of what it came out of, I, I guess. And one thing that you do talk about a lot in your books is the importance of service. But I know you don't just mean volunteer work or donating your teacher teaching. <laughs> Would you like to share like your meaning of service and why this is so important? Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great question because to me, to me, it's very hard to define yoga. I mean, I think that we... <laughs> We do it in many different ways. You know, you can define yoga from all different angles. But in the end, I think that's what yoga is really about, is service. And that's kind of what we started talking about earlier, like having energy so that I can be there for others. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I mean by service. Like not only having energy to be there for others, but also not being attached to the outcome of our actions, you know, which is what I think of as service or karma yoga or seva. And... So I think if you're a yoga teacher, to me, teaching yoga is, again, just another kind of practice. So I like, you know, I really approach this book as, you know, like, how, I can, how can I support yoga teachers in, in seeing that, in, in, in perceiving yoga teaching as an expansion of their personal practice? 
And then service is nat- naturally arises then because if yoga is about service, when you're teaching yoga, it's just an incredible opportunity for service. And so just to clarify, because I know that this is a common criticism of a particular type of yoga teacher who shows up and does their own practice in front of the mm-hmm. room and it's almost like a performance or they're in their own space and not really connected to the people that they're sharing with. So what does service as a teacher mm. look like for you? Well, that, that's what that whole book is, honestly. You know, it really, it's really trying to answer that question. It's like, what, what is it like to approach teaching as service and to be, to be kind of so open-minded and, and I don't know what the word is, like expansive in your approach that you're able to serve all the students not only individually but how they are in that moment and yet also create a cohesive kind of dynamic community feeling and it sounds it sounds like really big and a lot but I think that I think yoga teachers are doing it already I mean I'm this you know I'm not saying that what I'm describing in this book is necessarily new right I think a lot of teachers have been doing this forever and are incredible but what I wanted to do was just really like pull it apart in detail like what are the little things that you're doing and what are the I mean it it's kind of surprising to me like I could have written twice as many words than I did, honestly. Like I could have just kept going, you know, kept going on and on and on because there's so much there's so much to it, even though it seems so simple. And I think to do it well, it actually needs to look simple. But there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think yeah. One of the things that I consider to be a real strength of a great writer is to take something that's intricate and complex and maybe challenging to understand and to make it simple. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Well, I may have failed at that. I <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've read the book. You did great. <laughs> okay. Because I mean, I don't know if I made it so simple. It's still a whole book. You know, it's quite long, but I tried to at least say it. I mean, my goal wasn't, I mean, that, that's a lofty goal for a writer, you know. And I know you're a writer too, so I know you're there. You have to be careful you don't like set your sights too high, you know. But it's like my goal was to just be able to literally like put it into words, just like verbalize what it was that I kind of sense or a feeling I have about how I, how I, how do I feel? Like what, what is it that I'm trying to do when I go to teach yoga? And I started to realize there's a lot to it. Like I have a lot of thoughts about it actually. Yeah. So one quote that I loved, which I think is a powerful question for us all to ask ourselves as teachers and maybe even just as humans in our other interactions mm. is, are you teaching in a way that lifts people up and shows them their own beauty and potential or are you teaching in a way that makes people feel diminished, disempowered or unworthy? And like you do mention in the book how many people finish their teacher training and then just go on to teach in exactly the same way that their teacher taught, like maybe even the same sequences and the same instructions. And sometimes that's seen as being respectful to your lineage and to your teacher to kind of be true to that. But at the same time, like the question that you ask a lot in your book is like, is this serving the people who are in the room? Yeah. That wasn't a question, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. Well, one thought I had about that is that I feel like what what the book helped me do was to kind of put a lot of these pieces together. And what I started to see is that it's almost like we're looking at like the different chapters and parts of the book are like looking at different sides of the same thing. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, you know, 
I can think of a lot of analogies. You know that there's an analogy about like an elephant. Oh, it's probably ableist actually about like a blind person holding, touching an elephant. But, you know, if you're holding the trunk versus holding the leg, you might describe the elephant differently. And I feel like that's kind of how it is with yoga teaching. It's like, if you look at it from a certain perspective, like if you look at it from the position of ableism actually, or like trying to make your approach sensitive to people with disabilities, then I think there's certain things you do. But those kind of work right alongside other things that you want to do, like trying to give people agency, like you said, like that's the same thing, or trying to address racism or cultural appropriation, like they kind of all fit together in a way and trying to find ways to, yeah, cultural appropriation, addressing the ways that we hold this precious thing, these teachings that we have that we're honored to, to pass on. And how do we take on that burden and responsibility in a way that is respectful to the tradition, but also applicable to the present moment and the people in front of you. And so I think what I'm trying to say, long-winded way, is that I think it all kind of fits together. At least that's my hope. I definitely saw that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just sort of wanted to make a quick aside. Something that I saw in a local yoga group recently, there was a t-shirt, a t-shirt print, and the t-shirt print said, vintage yoga teacher I know more than I say, and oh, I see more than you realize. Yeah, and I see more like than that. you realize. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we had some feelings about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it just sort of evoked the sense that I know better than you, <laughs> which is. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a, that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I actually talk about that in the book. Not that shirt, but that idea. <laughs> I talk about the fact that, you know, through practice, like I was, I was thinking about what the teachings say about being a teacher, you know, like what, what is the, what do the sutras say? What do the Gita say, says? And the, the sutras say that, like in chapter three, which is the part that we often don't study, where you look at the, you know, the powers, the special powers that arise from practice. One of them is that if you, you can, read people's thoughts by looking at their bodies you can know you can know their thoughts but then patanjali goes on to say but you don't you won't know like the the reason for their thoughts you don't know why they're having those thoughts do you know what i'm saying so you can't you you can see kind of the surface he's saying and you can read people's minds in a sense which is a little creepy but you don't know what like what their like real intentions are what's going on behind that which i think is a really interesting kind of aside from Patanjali when he's talking about magical powers. <laughs> but um, the reason I bring that up is that I feel like I've had that happen to me in a sense. And not that I've had magical powers, maybe, but I've had like intuitive feelings come over me sometimes. Like I'm working with someone, I have just like intuitive thing, like, oh, maybe we try this. Or what do you think of that? Like something will come through that I didn't expect, right? And then I think, well, that's great. Like that's a wonderful thing. And I think to have that skill as a teacher is wonderful at the same time. I don't have to be attached to that. Like, I don't really have to know why I did that, but also I don't need to be attached to the student not liking it or liking it either. And I think that's kind of what that t-shirt gets at is a little bit like, yeah, you can have an intuitive sense of what's best for your students, but that doesn't mean that you, you're right. <laughs> your intuition could be wrong. 
Something I've learned as well through teaching is how some people's concentration face or just going inwards face looks like they're hating your class. Yeah. And so you're like the whole time yeah. you'll be kind of like worried about it because you're like, oh my gosh, they look like they're having a terrible time. And at the end, they're like, yeah. that was amazing. That was just what I needed. <laughs> I talk about that in the book too. Exactly. I've had that happen so many times where I had you know, I was making an assumption. So I talk a lot about that, like about making assumptions. Like I had thought something about someone and it was totally wrong, you know, and it's so often the case that we're wrong, you know, and it, like the, the, the judgments we make and the kind of the way we stereotype people is such an obstacle to our ability to serve them. And so, you know, one of them, I think one of the most important ways you can make yoga accessible as a teacher is to just let go of that hundred percent because I've just had so many people over the years just blow my mind. Just, you know, not at all what I expected from them. And not only the faces they were making, but their ability, like their physical ability, you know, whether they, uh, you know, were in a larger body or had some serious mobility limit limitation or whatever it was that I thought, oh, they're not going to be able to do such and such. And then they would just kind of do it and do something more incredible and just blow my mind, honestly, just over and over. And like on this same thread, like another layer to this, I've actually seen this question asked online a few times and it would definitely apply to, actually it can apply to anyone, but somebody like a yoga teacher says, oh, this person in my class won't stop fidgeting. They can't relax. What should I do about it? Without kind of knowing that for some people stimming, like especially in neurodivergent people, might be how they do relax and how it's not about you if someone's not still in shavasana like that might be their way to peace of mind yeah but it's an overlay of oh this is what relaxation looks like Mm. i love that that's beautiful i don't know i hope i wish i put something like that in there i hope so because i i think that's exactly right you know we have to let go of Oh, I know what I did talk about is that we, we can't project our experience. So just because you have a certain experience of a practice or a pose and you feel like, oh, I really like this pose, that doesn't mean the students will. They're going to have a totally different experience. And I think if you, it's like you have to be encouraging and you might want to offer some ideas like, oh, this could benefit that, this could benefit that. But you don't want to say things that are just like, this pose is so relaxing. This is so yummy. You know, and it's like that is just your experience. You need to you need to say it in that way. Like, I find this pose really relaxing, but it may not be, you know? It's like, I sometimes when I'm leading relaxation, like a guided meditation, I, I, I used to be very committed to my, you know, what I would say. And nowadays I'm just like, you know, feeling relaxed or not, you know? And it's like, whatever, you know, it's like, whatever. It's like, you, you know, I don't know how you're feeling. And it could be, you could be having a wonderful time. Or it could be absolutely horrible. And that's fine too. And I, I do think we need to give students space because I think that there's a certain conflict that goes on internally but inside of students when they feel that their experience doesn't match up to what yours is or what you expect theirs to be. And it makes them feel like a failure. And it may actually, what it might do is also pull them away from connecting with their inner sensing. And so I talk about that a little bit, the importance of interoception and that that's what we're trying to build up in the students, you know, is their ability to sense what's happening inside. And the more you project yourself onto them, the less they'll be able to do that. And I think there's the layer as well of, especially people who maybe have PTSD or like a lot of pain, sometimes pain. diving deep into interoception may not be what they need at yeah. that moment. So that can even be another perception of this is what deep practice looks like. 
that isn't helpful for everyone yes. at all right. times, which you definitely talk about in the book. Yeah, and I do. And I talk about how people with chronic pain, and this is a generalization, but I would say that people with chronic pain often have, or and even disabled people often have increased interoceptive abilities already because they're already dealing with a lot of inner sensation ongoing. And so in a way, they're quite advanced, you know, quote, advanced, I would say, because they've, they've gone probably beyond you if you don't have that going on with your body, right? They already know what they're feeling, what they're feeling inside. And so maybe there's something else they need, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's other things like strength or, or relaxation or whatever, who knows, you know, it's something else you could offer them as a teacher. Yeah. And one thing that you really highlight as such a powerful and beautiful offering is the power of community and collaboration. And I love how it actually takes the pressure off us as individuals, as yoga teachers, to have all of the answers because there's the whole community contributing and also that own person's knowledge of themselves and what they already know works for them that we can draw from. Like we don't have to have the perfect answer or the perfect pose because yeah. that's not it. Right. This is another piece of the puzzle. You know, I feel like like I hope they all fit together and make this kind of beautiful image. But for me, it's like another big piece of the puzzle is not only our role, but the way we feel about ourselves and our experience as teachers, I think is really, really important. And if we set ourselves up to be a healer, to be the one who knows or the one to fix someone, then we're going to get burned out. We're going to fail. And that's not productive and it's not helpful to the students. Anyway, so yeah, community community is another point, though. I guess I didn't really get make that point. But I would say community is key as well as collaboration. Collaboration is an opportunity to just basically give the power back to the student. So if you have a traditional, if, if you approach teaching from a traditional place that you're like, you're the one in the, in the power position and the student doesn't have it, have power, then you're, you're already missing out on an opportunity. You've already given yourself this huge burden to carry as the teacher. And it does lead to burnout, in my experience. When I, when I approach teaching like I have to know, then I have way more responsibility. And it's, it's, it's like exhausting. It's totally exhausting because I'll never know what's right for everyone. But when I share that power and I give students the opportunity to find their own way, I can, I can shift my role slightly to be more of like a cheerleader or supporter. Like, yeah, great job, you know. In doing that, like I didn't, you know, rather than kind of like being always at the head of the class, I'm just kind of part of the group, not letting go of my authority and my responsibilities, but leading by example and leading. And that's another big part of the book, actually, is like, what does it mean to be a leader, right? What is what is leadership as a yoga teacher? How can you be a leader and actually cultivate community and cultivate the power of the students rather than your own? And I think we've seen a lot of that not happen in yoga, the abuse that always happens. And I say always because literally like almost always happens when there's a charismatic leader or yoga teacher is not the way to go. There's got to be another, there's got to be another way. And just to change the topic slightly, I, I, I do love your story about the class when someone gave you a bunch of flowers at the beginning to say thank you for the class. And then after a very chaotic start and a lot of shuffling around, uh, they oh yell God. out, do you even know what you're doing? <laughs> and I, th- I think a lot of yoga teachers can relate to this roller coaster of feeling like you've got it all together one minute to questioning whether you could even do this at all. I know I definitely feel that. So yeah. can you share with us what you've learned along the way? Yeah. 
That was remarkable, that experience. I mean, I'll never forget it because it was like literally within like 15 minutes, you know, I had, I was being praised and I was being blamed. And that's what my, one of my teachers would always say that, you know, praise and blame. It's always, it's all the same. That's what he would say. Praise and blame. It's all the same. And I always think of that because I was thinking like, you know, we can't allow ourselves to be put up on a pedestal and we also can't allow ourselves to put ourselves down too much. And I think neither one is effective. So I think the challenge as humans, and it's not just as teachers, but as humans is to actually just find that middle ground where we like are really honest about our skills and abilities and also our limitations and are okay with that, you know? And one of the things, one of the reasons I wrote the book actually is because I get frustrated sometimes when some of the most incredible people who I think should be teaching more are too insecure and they don't, you know what I'm saying? And often it's, it's often people who are marginalized, you know, like people who are disabled or people of color or trans people or queer people who feel like, you know, I'm not, I don't fit the image of a yoga teacher, so I'm not going to put myself out there. And I think it's really, it's such a loss for the yoga community that we've set some kind of weird standard that usually depends on f- external physical ability and appearance rather than on something else. And I want to know what, what is that other thing that really makes a good yoga teacher? And it's not how you look, how you do the poses, how flexible you are. That doesn't make any difference. You know, I think the quality of a good yoga teacher is someone who is humble and yet strong at the same time. Like there's a certain, I don't know what that quality is, but I'm trying to get it, right? It's like a balanced approach where you see, where you see the students as your equals and you respect them and you're kind to them. Maybe that's it, just being kind. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that like yoga teacher or not, like you said, we can all work on just being kind to ourselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think that I'm a very shy person and I really struggled with being a teacher. So I'm just saying from my personal experience, I'm talking to myself because when I first, I didn't want to be a yoga teacher. You know, I loved yoga, but I was not interested in teaching. And it was, you know, a good friend of mine, Kurt, who died of AIDS. And I mentioned him in the book and I've always talked about him. He was my best friend who died of AIDS in 1995. He forced me to become a yoga teacher. And literally, I mean, he just said, like, he was so assertive with me about it and just like made me sign up for a training and like made me go and do it. And I had already, I had already started like two years before I'd already started studying to be a teacher. And he was finally pushing me just like, no, just go take like a three month course and just do it. And I did. And, and it, because I wanted to serve people with HIV and AIDS. And, and he just said, like, just go take the freaking training. So anyway, then it, he died like a few months later, later after I graduated. So that was meaningful to me. But my point is I'm, I'm very shy. And I was especially back then. And I just thought I'm, there's no way I could be in front of a group. And it was just the most horrible experience for me. First few years, it was years, I would say maybe five years of, and, and even today, I mean, it takes, it takes a lot out of me, like just to get up in front of a group. But now I'm kind of used to it. But it's, it's been 30 years now, but after the, it took me five years to get even comfortable in front of a group. I just was so shy. I would shake. I would be sweating. I would be bright red. It was such, I I would panic. I would like have a panic. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, it's Ron here. Just popping in to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Your continued support means the world to us and we are incredibly grateful. By joining our little Patreon club for as little as $1 US a month, you can help us cover the cost of editing and producing the podcast. 
Patreon members also get access to some great bonus content. This episode, our bonus question to Jivana was how do you stop Santosha or contentment from becoming smugness? And he gave us an excellent answer. It feels like this was one that hit home for all of us and he shares some great insights. So if you'd like to support us, head on down to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast. Other than like your loving memory of Kurt, like what no. kept you going through five years of having such a hard time doing this? Well, I mean, it was it was so compelling. It was, even from the first class, there was something about it. I mean, I mean, it wasn't even Kurt at that point. It was literally just the experience of teaching was just incredible to me to be able to. I I don't know what it was. It was like it. What it felt like was like doing my practice, but even deeper. You know what I mean? There was, I think, a focus that came because in the end, didn't, you know, I started by talking about how we define yoga. And one of the def- defining qualities of yoga is focus for me. And I think teaching made me focus even more. I was more attentive. I was more present than if I was participating as a student. It's like my mind couldn't wander at all. And so I'd have this long, you know, hour and something. Some, I would teach long classes, sometimes two hours. And I would be like totally focused, totally present. And there was nothing like that. And I would leave and I'd be like, wow, that was just like, you know, it's like a long meditation or something. It's just, and you know, you're, you're nodding and you're, you're teachers. So you know what I mean? There's something I just had to keep doing it, even though I kind of hated it. <laughs> I didn't really talk about that in the book very much, but. Thanks for asking. (laughs) It actually really leads me to something that you do write about in the book, which I'll quote you. The yoga practices are all designed to lead us back home to ourselves. They're Mm. not about giving us something new or making us into something else. They're not about healing us, fixing us, or fitting us into a mold, but rather peeling away the layers, like stripping away the layers of paint from wood furniture. And... The question that came up for me is how do we know the difference between returning to our authentic selves versus trying to change ourselves because the mind can be very tricky? And it sounds like from what you just shared, it's like you got beneath the sad, the shyness to something deeper that felt authentically you and then you were just so present in that place that took you through the two hours. Yeah. But I think we're so wired to criticize ourselves. Like, how do we know what is that deeper layer of true connection to who we are versus just another way of being hard on ourselves? Yeah, that's such a good question. I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to figure that out. (laughs) But I, I do know that shyness is another form of ego. And so it's something I've really been working on in myself is that, you know, ego's not bad, but you know, and I think ego gets a really bad rap in yoga, but ego is is kind of in the yoga teachings is like a case of mistaken identity. It's like where the ego takes responsibility for something that it's not doing, right? For the work of the spirit. And so I would say the way I know the difference between, like, I think what you're asking, how do you know the difference between the voice of spirit and the voice of ego? And and it And it's hard, but I would say to me, it's more of like a emotional thing is more of a sensing that the voice of spirit to me is not usually words it's usually just a sense a feeling and like an intuitive vibe i get i can't believe i just said that but you know the ego tends to be more like intellectual spinning thoughts um 
you, what do you think? Well, it's actually brought me back to, this is taking it back to a physical level, but you know the poses that really challenge you and some teachers are like, oh, that means you need to do it more. You've got to take your medicine. Like it hurts because you're really deficient in that area and you've got to work on that versus, oh, okay, maybe there is a little bit of an imbalance in how I stand or how I move. So it would be helpful to do the opposite thing to the thing that is already my habit. And how I would kind of sort through that for myself is, okay, maybe there's a strong sensation in the moment and maybe I don't, like I'm not comfortable and I'm not loving it, but how do I feel afterwards? So when I come out, do I feel more balanced? Do I feel more calm or do I just feel like sore and broken because I've tried to push my body into a position that it's not made for? That is a great, great example. It also makes me think of Kriya Yoga, you know, the first sutra in book two of the Yoga Sutras where Patanjali says tapas, you know, so tapas is kind of that discipline that you're talking about. Like, yeah, discipline is complicated. I mean, what does tapas really mean? Is, is it like self-flagellation? Is it making yourself do something even if you don't want to and you really hate it? Or is it, or is discipline like just structured practice or, you know what I mean? Like, where is that line? And again, I think... To me, the answer is always in the middle somewhere, like it's always in the middle path. But I think we need some kind of discipline, but it can be, it can be sweet. It can be a sweet mm-hmm. discipline that is like a routine. Do you know what I mean? That's something. Yeah, like the discipline have. is showing up. Yeah, just showing up, you know, just like, exactly. Like for me, I have a daily meditation practice, but it's, it's not extremely disciplined. I just make myself sit on the, on the cushion. I, I don't, and I have a routine and I do that every day, but it's like, I don't get too caught up in what happens during that time. Like, I don't really beat myself up because that's just wasting energy. It's just my mind playing games. It's like, my discipline is I'm just going to do it for some time. I'm going to sit down over there on that right there. (laughs) That's going to happen, you know? The other other piece that he, I mean, that Patanjali shares with us though is that tapas is just the beginning. It's just, yeah, the doing it, like, it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down. And then Svadhyaya, like reflection is kind of where you are going. It's like, well, you know, how do I feel? And what, where, what am I attached to, actually? Like, what is the obstacle here? And then the answer is always Ishvara Pranidhana, which is like surrender to myself, like connect with myself. Know I'm okay no matter what. Because even if I have an imbalance in my body, it's okay. <laughs> part of being human <laughs> we all do like yeah like we're all gonna have imbalances we're all gonna eventually get sick and die so it's just like you know don't get too caught up in the perfection like that it's a waste of time you know enjoy enjoy life and and be of service like use the energy just think about that like i, I think a lot a lot about this is how much energy i spend beating myself up and how much we all do that. And if we actually focus that energy on service and doing some good in the world, it would be absolutely miraculous. You know? I think there's another layer to this as well that I've noticed and I've noticed it in the yoga community. Maybe I've noticed it myself as well, but say you are very disciplined in what you do and in your practice and you push through when it's hard there can be a sense of moral superiority that can come with that when you look around. And I think it feeds into ableism as well when everyone has their own capacity for how much they can do in a day. 
and maybe you've found time and space to do a little bit more, but that doesn't mean that another person has that capacity in their lives or in their bodies. So there's a judginess that can come in around doing your practice and around being disciplined. And I wonder if you've seen that too. Oh my God, in myself. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's always the case. It's like you see it in yourself and then you see it in other people and you're like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like I'm really judgmental against my, about myself and self-critical, but then I'm also judgmental about other people all the time. Like everyone I meet, I'm judging them about something. It's like, who am I, you know, to be judging everyone in the world? I mean, and to bring it back to being a yoga teacher, like what, what is good is that to be a yoga teacher who's constantly judging my students? Like that's not our job. That's not what, that's not what mm. students are coming for. I mean, some might be, you know, and that's the thing, you know, that I, I tried to touch on a little bit is trauma and the fact that I think sometimes students mm, might be attracted to the more disciplined approach or even might, because of their trauma history, expect to be treated in a certain way that's not even healthy, that doesn't mean we have to do that. We don't have to feed into that. As a yoga teacher, our job is to see clearly and to try to use our personal practice, which is essential that we have some kind of practice where we're working on seeing ourselves and the way we act in relationship to others. And then we bring that into the yoga space. And so that we're truly conscious of ourselves. That's our main job. And that we don't, and that, and then we can start letting go of judgments because when you start being conscious of yourself, then like you said, you stop seeing, then you stop judging everyone else, right? It's like, wait a minute, we're all trying the best we can, right? I don't know. I love the idea that you share about using yoga ethics and this kind of svadhyaya and philosophy that you're talking about more as a GPS rather than like a fence or a guardrail. So it's leading us towards something rather than fencing off experiences. Like it's a yes rather than a no. And that's what helps us set our course through life. Would you like to unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I love that what you described, actually. I think ethics, ethics are the most important teachings in yoga and the most underutilized by the yoga community and yoga teachers. And actually, I think if we just, if we just practice the ethical teachings of yoga, then we wouldn't have to be even having this conversation because yoga automatically would be accessible and equitable to everyone. Like that would just be obvious because that would be ahimsa. Like that would be non-harm. Let me just end there. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, that is, in terms of GPS, that is our guiding light. Like, we need to follow that. And I've got another GPS yoga <laughs> quote from a past guest, Phil Kayumba, who says this in his classes, like, think of me, the teacher, like your GPS. Like, if you mm. need my guidance to tell you where to go, listen to me. But if you know your own better way and the route that you want to take to get there, like, you know your way. Yeah, I love that. I mean, w- one of the things I say all the time is, listen to me, but don't listen to me. Nice. Yeah. I guess I'm sort of reminded how I'm, I'm trying to line up a, another guest who is, is sort of more of a, an activist who works with refugees. And I, I sort of asked if they would be interested in speaking with us. And they said, sure, I'm happy to have a chat. I don't know what it's got to do with yoga, though. Mm. And I, I was sort of thinking, <laughs> I think sure. it's more than, um, <laughs> yeah. more than you realize. <laughs> Absolutely. And also yoga needs to work on its 
presentation to the world if someone whose job is helping refugees can't see how that would be connected to yoga. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. We have the work to do, not yoga. Like yoga itself is, you know. I know. It's the way that we are teaching it and sharing it, unfortunately, that is limited. Yeah. I think. The other thing I mentioned, when you mentioned GPS, I think in the book I talk about the fact that yoga offers so many different paths. I mean, there's so many different practices and ways in. And I think that we get so stuck in asana, obviously, but there's other techniques that work. And, you know, obvious, you know, obvious ones like pranayama and meditation, um, service, devotional practices, um, and yana yoga, self-inquiry. But I was thinking about that as like Google Maps, you know, when you put a destination in and it says, how do you want to get there? And it's like, you're all, you're going to the same place, but you can get there on your bicycle or walking or by car or transit. And it's like, in a way, that's what's happening. I think with the yoga practices is that you just choose the ones that you like and you're all, we're all going to the same place. I love that. And I also love the line in your book, which is, the thing is, I hardly know anyone who thinks they're very good at meditation. (laughs) And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because I think we, I don't know, I think about that all the time. And sometimes you don't even feel like you're getting any better at meditation, even though you practice it more. So do you want to share some of the misconceptions around meditation and the benefits? Like, even if we think we're really bad at it, even if we think we're taking the footway that's going to take 12 times as long as the car way. Yeah. And it might actually, but, um, (laughs) uh, well, I think the reason I mentioned that in the book is that I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that so many yoga teachers don't teach meditation or at least see meditation as separate from yoga, which makes no sense to me. I mean, you don't always have to teach it. And for some students may not want it, and that's fine. But in just saying that as a teacher, you need to understand that yoga and meditation are the same thing. There's, you cannot, you literally cannot separate them. And so it kind of always makes me laugh that we have to, t- when we teach publicly, we have to say like, I'm teaching yoga and meditation. It's just like bizarre to me. But like I said, though, there are many people who don't need it and aren't, you know, because of where they're at in their life, it's not appropriate and that's fine. But um, this idea that meditation, that when you go to sit in meditation, we have this like preconceived idea that we're going to have a quiet mind or a peaceful experience is just not true. And I think that that public concept, again, like having a bad reputation, I think meditation has a bad rap publicly. I think that mindfulness is like seen as doable, but somehow meditation is not. And I feel like, yeah, it's an obstacle in itself. And just to unpack that a little bit more, what would you define as being the differences between mindfulness and meditation? Well, I think of mindfulness as a technique of meditation. I mean, it's it's a form, to me, mindfulness is basically a kind of westernized Buddhist practice. That's very close to yoga. Buddhism and yoga really are inseparable. I mean, the teachings are so, so similar and come out of some of the same places. But mindfulness and the teachers that created it were Buddhist practitioners. Yoga, we have some different techniques. Like there is traditional yoga techniques for meditation that I think are a lot more accessible than mindfulness. For example, mantra repetition, which kind of gets a bad reputation also. But mantra repetition to me is like a thousand times easier than mindfulness. Like for me, mindfulness is like a lot for my head to take on, but like I can repeat a mantra for a minute. You know what I'm saying? Like that feels way more doable to me. And I think 
for many, many students who are starting out in meditation, not only, well, I said mantra, but you could go back and look at all of the practices as supporting meditation. So if like, say you go to an hour long yoga class, what are you doing there? You're, you're moving your body mindfully. So you're kind of already getting into that mindful state and this meditative state. And then maybe you're doing, maybe doing formal breathing practices or not. You're doing Shavasana where you really can transcend your limited thinking. And then there's kind of this wasted opportunity, I think, at the very end of most asana classes where you could sit for a moment and actually feel a moment of meditation just kind of happen naturally. You know, just that you've done all that work of preparing the body and the breath. So the mind is a lot quieter anyway. And that's really where we're we're headed with meditation. So for me, like, there's such an opportunity within yoga asana classes to teach a more formal meditation that I think could really give students back some power. Yeah, yeah I love that. Mm-hmm. And I know what you mean. It's like all the physical poses, they're our warm-ups for our mind to get to that yeah. place at the end of the class. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully a few times during the class as well, there'll be moments where you can just drop into that present moment awareness. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of it, of yoga, right? It's like, it's not the asanas themselves. It's just this kind of, ability to get out of our heads, I think, and yeah, to get the mind quiet. And that's meditation. So it's like, we're doing it anyway, but somehow we don't call it meditation very much. I don't know why. I don't know. Yeah, I don't understand it exactly. I think I need to explore that in my next book. That's where I'm kind of headed. Ooh, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And something I noticed that you have been exploring in this book, and also you've done some online trainings around it, is actually making pranayama more trauma-informed and more accessible as well. Would you like to share some of the things that you do to help open up these practices to be more helpful for more people, or some of the things that you don't do to avoid kind of taking people away from that peace of mind and into a more kind of disturbed or distracted or yeah. like traumatic experience. Yeah, I mean, pranayama is, is like that, that link that we have between the body and the, and the mind. And it's such, a, it's such an important link. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's something we can grasp hold of so much more readily than the mind. So it's, it's such a it's such an amazingly powerful practice that again, I think is often ignored or taught in a way that's not accessible for many, many people. And, and, and that includes not being trauma informed. And so the way I would teach, I mean, I I could, I do teach a whole course on it, so I could go on about it, but I'll just say, (laughs) let's see, how can I say it? Giving people again, authority over themselves, agency over their own breath and choice and how they want to control it or not. And I think that's the main message. Remembering that if you're breathing, you're doing it right. <laughs> that's what I would say. Like starting out with that positive idea that you're not doing it wrong and it doesn't need to be fixed or changed. Like that's an amazing feeling, right? Because like I think most students who come to yoga and if I say, okay, now we're going to do some breathing practices, part of their mind is thinking, oh, shh shit like you know like i don't you know what i mean like now i have to change or do it differently and i don't think that's true pranayama can feel like again that coming home it can be so enjoyable and relaxing and such a positive experience and i don't know about you but that's not how i find it in many public classes you know my experience if pranayama is taught at all i mean usually it's just not even there 
there's not really a formal pranayama, but when it is, it feels a little bit strict and like do this and do that and breathe for this certain length of time and then hold the breath. And I think those things are are not necessarily trauma-informed, especially around retention, focusing on big breathing a lot, right? Like we always focus on expand the breath, inhale more, exhale more. It's like that that's not really what we're trying to get at in pranayama is is quietness and peace of mind. And the way we do that is through getting calmer and more peaceful, relaxing the body, relaxing the nervous system. And we can't do pranayama if the nervous system is stimulated. So we have to find a way to, again, use asana as preparation and really kind of use the breath as uh, like, I don't know, cushion for the mind so it can rest there like a little pillow for your mind, (laughs) your head. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. And I think a lot of what comes up for people as well, especially people who have anxiety or panic attacks, how they're told again and again that they need to take a deeper breath and a slower breath, but it can actually be quite activating and just focusing on the breath in itself can, like it's tied up with all of those feelings of anxiety and panic and what suggestions do you have to, like you're leading a group class, maybe you know that you have some people in your class who do deal with anxiety. <laughs> do you give options? Do you give alternatives? Do you just try and guide in a really open way so hopefully people can engage at a level that feels comfortable and supportive for them because that is the thing with these subtle practices in a really diverse group. Like people are going to have really different responses. Yeah. I mean, I have a history of anxiety myself, so I know how triggering pranayama can be. And I had to kind of relearn the practices myself. I would just say, yeah, like repeat exactly what you said, you know, giving people agency to choose what feels right for them is the most important part but also to to teach in a way that works on the nervous system to make sure that the things you're doing are relatively calming. So for example, like focus on the exhalations, relax long exhalations will, you know, stimulate the vagus nerve and help to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system response, the relaxation response. If that's what people need. So people who are more tone, tone you know, what's the word? <laughs> more towards the anxious side. Now there might be people that are more towards like lethargic or depressed and that maybe then you need to focus on the inhalation more. So I do, it's not like one size fits all, but I would just say I tend to err towards the calming, you know, at least in, in the U S I think most people just need to relax a little bit. So focusing on long, slow exhalations and vocalizing. So vocalizing, making noise with sound, with sound, making noise with sound is really, really effective for relaxation and for calming the vagus nerve. And it's a great way into pranayama. So that could be like ah breath, like just deep inhale, exhale. Ah, like that's pranayama, you know, and it's not, it's not too complicated. And that's the other thing is like pranayama and meditation, it's such a interesting thing to consider that they're more accessible actually because they don't demand physical strength or flexibility or anything and they're also more subtle and quote advanced like they actually are more and when i say advanced what i mean is really more powerful and that's the thing about yoga that's so incredible to me is that the the most powerful practices of yoga are actually available to everyone and yet we seem to focus so much on the ones that are less accessible asana 
right? So it's a, it's really important for people that want to teach in a way that's accessible as you begin to make these subtle practices available to all your students. Meaning, you know, teaching pranayama, teaching meditation, finding ways. And, and I think it's not, um, there's not a one size fit all answer. It really is, like you said, in a group class, it's about really just giving options and, and being open to being wrong. I mean, and, and giving people the choice to do something different, you know, like, so I might teach a practice where I say, you know, let's deepen the breath or not. Like if it doesn't feel right to you, that's okay. You know, I mean, just specifically tell people to not do something if it feels wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's so simple to just remind people that it's okay to not do something if it's not working for you. Yeah. Like that's also part of this practice. It is a big part, actually. And it's hard for people to know. I, I think that's, you know, something that an experienced student learns is what's not working for them. And so if you have students that are less experienced, they need more guidance actually around that. And so what, you know, what your job is as a teacher is to actually teach your students how to decide what is for them and what isn't for them. And then eventually when someone kind of has a sense of what is for them, then you can go deeper with their practice. But until then, it's really just like finding that middle path, finding what is beneficial and not harmful for each individual is really the job. That's your job as a teacher. And I have definitely had the experience and I can understand it where maybe someone has to make a lot of decisions in their job, or maybe someone has a lot of family demands. They're taking care of lots of other people. Like their day is full of decisions. So when they get to yoga class, they actually just want to be guided. Yeah. And people have said, like, I'll give three options and they'll say, no, no, you tell me which one is best for me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I get it, but at the same time, I like I'd love to know how you navigate those situations where people are sick of making decisions and they just want to be told. Yeah, and I talk about that in the book around I, I, I question invitational language that we're trained to use in trauma informed trainings. I actually think that invitational language, which is where every instruction is offered as kind of a question or as open-ended. I think that's actually more complicated and in a sense, I'm going to say potentially less trauma-informed because I think what it does, it demands that people turn within all the time. And if someone has a high trauma load, I think it's very hard for them to know what's right for me right now. And I think we're just, we have to ease people in, you know what I mean? Like hold their hands and give them some support. And so it could be someone who's had a busy day or it could be someone who's come out of, you know, has PTSD. I mean, it's, I, I agree that we have to keep it simple in that case and very clear, like, just try this, you know, maybe give two options. I will, I usually, I usually give two, try this or this. And I don't usually go beyond that unless they literally are like, oh no, I can see that's not working. And then like, okay, or try this. But Sometimes I just give one option. And usually when I teach, when you see, like I teach online now and I don't even see the students, I usually just give one option these days because I'm just like, what I want to make it is as simple and clear as possible. I'll always give people the opt out. Say if this isn't, whatever it feels, whatever doesn't feel good for you, don't do, right? Oh, you always have a choice. But here's this one. Just try this. See how that feels. And then try this. See how that feels. And just like, if I'm constantly asking you to reflect um, what do you want to do right now? Do you want to move your body like this? I don't know. Like that, that's a harder thing as a student, you know? 
Yeah, I really like what's known as like the bus stop method for that, where you can yeah, be like, you can yeah. stay here, or if yeah. you want, you could like try this other thing. But if they're already kind of in a position that's feeling okay, the option to just stay there, I think, can sometimes be an easier decision than like to be confronted with all these different choices like right up front. Yeah. I like the bus stop method too, but I tend to not use it. I think because I think I move pretty fast. I think part of accessibility is now I know for some people, some, some disabled people can't move quickly and I understand that, but I would say for a lot of people holding poses for longer time is just too challenging. It's like just too demanding, mostly for their mind. (laughs) And so I think more of a gentle, easy flow, not like a intense flow, but something gentle and easy and moving tends to kind of bring people along, I find. But it, you know, it depends on who you're working with. And I like that you actually give the option of holding the pose for longer as a way to challenge more in a class where there's mixed levels of experience and stamina, I guess. Yeah. Well, one easy way to do that is to say, so say you're teaching a movement, like like if I'm sitting and I want to have my arms out to the side and inhale, raise them up overhead, I, what I could do is I could offer option to continue moving, inhale, raise arms up, exhale, lower down, or just hold the arms and keep them up. So it's like you could have either a dynamic versus static practice offered simultaneously, which is nice. That gives people a choice, what feels best for their body. And that's the other thing, of course, that I talk about in the book that I do in all my trainings, and that's how to create integrated experiences where you can have multiple levels of student students practicing together. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with that, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk people through how you do set that up? I mean, I, the example I always use is someone who's practicing on a chair, in a chair, and someone who's practicing in a, on a mat in the same class. And Because I, I think that we've segregated yoga, you know, that mat practice is separate from chair yoga or from, I don't know what, from accessible yoga as if it's a separate thing. And I actually think accessibility means integration. And so to me, I want to start bringing chair yoga students into those mat classes. And I want those mat yoga teachers to learn how to integrate that student, how someone coming in a chair or wheelchair will feel totally welcome and part of the experience equally. And that's the key. They have to be equally participating. The, the, the technique I offer and it, it can take some time to, you, to learn it, but is to build the foundation of the poses separately. So you might give instructions separately on the mat and then in the chair, but then you teach some part of the pose together. So I say prepare separately, practice together. So like if you're doing tree pose and I have some students sitting in the chair and some standing, I might say, okay, if you're in the chair, you can bring your leg out to the side and bring your foot onto the, you know, the, the heel of your right foot onto the front of the leg of the chair. And then if you're standing, you can externally rotate your leg and bring your heel onto. Actually, you could have done those two things together, actually, but onto the other heel or something. And then together, everyone inhale, bring the palms together at the chest, focus the eyes on a spot, you know, and then continue to teach the pose, everyone together. And the, again, the reason I'm doing that is because I want to make everyone feel equally participating. Is that a word? To equally, to equally participate. That's the word. In the class, right? What sometimes I see what happens is someone, a student might join the class and feel kind of insecure and they'll kind of sit in the back and not really, you know, kind of hide. And I, I don't really want that happening. And I love that all the photos of your book, of Asana, yeah. are three people practicing the same pose in three different ways, chair, yeah. mash, and 
What do you do? Standing or? Chair mat and well, two chair, and then there's a student using a, a folding chair and a student using a power wheelchair, and then someone on the mat. And I just, I just wanted to demonstrate that idea of how poses can look so different in different bodies, and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, what is a yoga pose really? You know, and I think that we have to really question that <laughs> this idea of it looking a certain way, and the ideas we have around alignment, you know, and start looking at what well, safety, and then experience like what is the experience that we're trying to share and that's why you're doing that certain pose beautiful i guess we've got our our last question which we ask every time (laughs) and and it'd be interesting to see how this may have changed over the last few years but i guess if you could distill everything that you've learned and and taught over the past few years distill all that down to one single thing what do you think that thing would be to one word or one... Uh... Oh, it can be a whole paragraph. Oh. We've, we've had a half hour answer to this question, so... <laughs> oh, wow. You don't don't I mean, feel you have to... <laughs> I, oh, wow. I think, you know, my practice is about remembering who I am. And that is that I'm a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. And, you know, shifting that... Oh, and there's a famous quote about that, which I can't think of right now, but he's a French person. But anyway, it's about this, the fact that, you know, usually we identify as human trying to be spiritual, but actually it's the opposite. You know, we're spiritual beings having this temporary human moment. And I, I try to bring that into my life. And so I think that to me is like what spiritual practice is for, is that reminding me myself, remembering who I am. And then actually allowing that awareness to shift the ways that I interact with people in the world. Because what it means is that I, I'm already full and I'm, and I'm already whole. And so it allows me to enter into relationships without needing anything, which is, I think, radical in a sense, because it allows me to, again, be of service when I'm coming from that place rather than needing to be served. And so I would say, yeah, just to to repeat that again, like to me, it's about remembering who I am so that I can be of service in the world. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Jivana, for everything that you share in the world, all the service that you give, and also for taking the time to talk to us this morning. It's always a wonderful experience. Yeah, thank you both so much. It's really just so nice talking to you. Yay. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, how to win your own copy of Jivana's book. Just head on over to either of our Instagram posts about this episode. I'm at Ran Loves Yoga and Joe is at Garden of Yoga. Tag three friends and make sure you're also following at Jivana Heyman. Entries close at the end of January and we'll choose our winner then. We'd like to express our gratitude to Ghost Soul for granting us permission to use their track Baby Robots as our theme song. Be sure to check out ghostsoul.bandcamp.com to discover more of their incredible music. Once again, thank you so much for spending your precious time with us. We really appreciate you more than words can express. He aroha nui mawakia koto katoa, sending you big, big love. <laughs>